0: evening we read scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. We read the entire chapter taking as our text verse 7. We hear the inspired infallible word of God. Likewise ye wives be in subjection to your own husband's that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wise. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I that, we take verse 7 as our text this evening. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Beloved our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter is writing to Christians who were seeking to maintain their life in accordance with God's will and God's precepts. The apostle is addressing those saints who were under persecution and opposition as a result. Because of their desire to live as pilgrims and strangers and to follow the will of their heavenly Father, they faced tremendous opposition. In the first chapter, Peter expresses the privilege of the grace that God has shown us. We have been given to know a marvelous and a wondrous grace. In the second chapter, he makes application to that as pilgrims and strangers that we are to live as God's children in the enjoyment of that grace in this life. How do we do that? By submitting to authority. Nothing shows the power of the gospel more than our obedience to God. If you love me, keep my commandments, was the word of Jesus to his disciples. That obedience reflects the gospel shining forth in our lives. And that obedience to God is necessary in all things. And that's the application the apostle makes, especially in chapters 2 and 3. Applying that obedience to every area and realm of life. He doesn't leave it in the abstract. He says, this is how it applies to government, then to work. And now in chapter 3, to marriage. Wives are to love God by submitting to their husbands. And this loving submission, which he calls the wives to in verses 1 through 6, enables them to stand before God in the pursuit of his glory and his honor. And that submission is seen by the world. It's seen by others as they see in it evidence of the power of the gospel as it enables that wife to show her love to her husband in that manner. It even is used by God as a testimony and a witness to unbelieving spouses, spouses that may not be walking in obedience to God. The wife is encouraged. Press on. Walk faithfully before your God. It may be that they without the word might be won by your godly conversation, your life. But now we have the application to husbands in verse 7. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Live your life in such a way that every day the power of the gospel is evident in the manner in which you're treating and interacting with your wife. He makes it more positive than that previously which would set forth in terms of the possibility of dwelling with an unbeliever. That was the situation that a wife might be in. It might be her husband's an unbeliever. She was called yet to live with him and to dwell with him with the view perhaps to God using that for good. But how much more beautiful to live with a believing husband, a believing wife. You are to dwell with your wife according to knowledge, to give honor to your wife. And your children must see that you cherish your wife and that you view your wife as your most valued and precious possession before God. To do so for the glory and the honor of God, a gift, Now, we look at this passage under the theme, the holy duty of husbands, noting, first of all, the godly husband, secondly, the twofold duty, and finally, the powerful incentive. God is speaking here to Christian husbands, and he's addressing those who possess, by God's grace, all the blessings of salvation, the blessings that he set forth in chapters 1 and chapter 2. These men have been baptized again unto a lively hope by Jesus Christ. These men possess an inheritance that's incorruptible, that fades not away. These are men whose faith is being strengthened through manifold trials and temptations. They are men who love the unseen Christ and who are rejoicing in the joy of their salvation. And he lays out the wonder. Everything that he says here about husbands is predicated by everything that he's spoken about the hope of the Christian and the child of God. Peter is speaking to you and to me as those who not only confess Christ with our mouth but are living the gospel and seeking to live before God faithfully and obediently to his glory from the heart we desire to show forth his praise now the only possibility of living the Christian life is having in your heart the joy of your salvation and the living hope that is in Jesus Christ and that's only possible by God's grace, all of the relationships that the apostles have been speaking of here are possible only by grace. But how much more the bond of marriage? The only possibility of living faithfully in marriage is based on the wonder of God's grace toward us. And we think about that: How do I know that grace, and how do I show my appreciation for the power of that grace? Christ chose me from all eternity apart from anything of myself, apart from anything of my works. He did so in love. He did so according to his good pleasure alone and Jesus Christ by his power and by his faithfulness preserves his church. He keeps her. He bought her with his own blood and he will perfect that church. By his grace. And bring her into the fullness of the joy of salvation. The church deserves nothing. Everything that she has is all of grace. And that's been the emphasis of the apostle throughout. This is who you are by a wonder of God's grace. He's taken you. And he's given you this living hope. And now you are to live out of that hope. And to show forth his praise. And so also marriage. Marriage is based on grace. If we were to to define marriage, that definition could be something like this. Two sinners, knowing the grace of Christ to them, now bound to one another for life, showing daily that grace to one another which they've tasted from God. It's all about grace. The grace with which God cares for me is that grace now that I reflect in my relationships, and specifically in marriage. That's the grace that allows the husband and the wife to forbear, to forgive all those weaknesses, all those sins that are evident daily in our marriages. Grace gives the power to do as Peter commands us later in chapter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. The emphasis on forgiving and forbearing in marriage is at the very heart of our Christian calling. And we know that. As those who have been married, we know the importance of forgiving, forbearing. It doesn't matter if we're single or if we're married. If we're young or old, Jesus commands us to walk in love. And to walk in forgiveness one toward another. And that which characterizes the communion of the saints. Which characterizes our homes. Is that forgiveness. That forbearing. One with another. As children you're called to bear patiently with the weaknesses of your parents. Your parents are sinners. That doesn't justify you sinning back against them. Bear patiently with the weaknesses. Forbear. Deal with them in a kind manner. Forgive them. ...as they confess those sins to you. Luke 6, verse 35 applies this even to those who are enemies. Love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest. Not only commanded to walk in love and faithfulness toward one another, not only toward those who are believers, but also those who are unbelievers... If this is the general rule for the child of God, how much more in marriages that are based on God's word? In marriage, we find a way to show that covenant, faithfulness, keeping love and forgiveness one toward another. And that grace of God is a power within us. It's the power that enables us to forgive and to endure even when we feel that we're being sinned against. It's also the power to change. It's the power to overcome that sin. Never do we undermine the power of God's grace in the heart and life of the child of God. God is at work by his word and by his spirit. And that was the confession of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had been guilty of gross sins. And he states in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, I am what I am by the grace of God. The power of God's grace is such that it turned me from a sinner who was walking unrepentantly in sin to one who now knows my sin, confesses it, and lives unto God and to his glory. Paul was a changed man by the power of the grace of God. And he never used his past as an excuse, nor may we. The power of God's grace is such that that grace works in us the ability to forgive. It works in us the ability to change and to turn away from temptation and to flee sin. That grace is seen by the world. And that grace gives us opportunity to be a powerful witness to those around us. Why is it that we're willing to forgive? Why is it that we're willing to maintain our marriages, and to stick with one another till death separates us. It's only by the power that God has worked within us. It's nothing of ourselves. Now, beloved, this word of God comes to those whose hearts God has transformed. God has given them new hearts. God has worked true gratitude, and he gives them the desire and the ability to pursue his will. This word of God, beloved, comes to you and to me who love God, who know the power of his grace in our lives, and who desire to maintain his will in our marriages. The power by which the Christian husband obeys this word of God is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working within us, that which delights and seeks the will of God. As God joins us together in marriage, we must be willing to confess this. More is required of me in marriage than I can ever give. I cannot begin to do what is required of me. Husbands, you're commanded to love your wives as Christ loves his church. You need to be willing to acknowledge, I can't do that of myself. More is required of me than I can do. I cry out to God. And I look to the one before whom I spoke my vows as the one alone who's able to preserve and to keep me. So that as this word comes to husbands who love God, who desire to pursue God's will, who want God glorified in their lives, this word of God comes to them and makes them know and believe they can't do this of themselves. God alone is our helper. And we cry out to him for mercy and for strength to persevere and to do his will. Now this word of God comes not just to husbands, it comes to all of us here. As young men, this is the goal that you must seek to attain should God give you a wife. Your model is not simply those around you. It's not your parents. It's not simply your friends. The model that God gives you is again Christ and his love for his bride. A love that is perfect, that is unchangeable, that's unconditional. A love that is eternal. You need to look to God and you need to know what is God's expectation for me as a Christian husband. And as we look to God and as we turn to his word, we're humbled. This is not something, again, I can do of myself. This is only possible by God's grace. And you need to know that so that you can help your married friends know how they are to conduct themselves toward their wives. It's important that you not detract them from their God-given calling toward their wives. Help them live as godly husbands by holding before them the responsibility they have toward their wives. As young women, this is the kind of man that you need to seek to marry not just one who's like your father, not just one who's strong, wealthy, good-looking. You need to look for a man who knows the love of God in his heart, who desires to stand before God with faithfulness and to honor Him in everything that He does. One who knows and confesses his sin, is willing to say, I'm sorry. One who doesn't treat his mother or his sisters with respect is not going to treat you with respect. A man who gives evidence of the work of God in his heart and who shows that respect, who shows that love, and who will treat you as God requires. As a congregation, we desire to grow in our understanding of the calling that God gives us with regard to marriage and to encourage one another in that Christian witness. The man of God stands before God in the desire to walk with God. And as he has that desire, he acknowledges that for me to walk with God requires prayer. It requires humble dependence upon God and upon his word. The calling that God gives us as Christians is not based on what we're able to do, but it's based on the grace of God. God requires us, again, that which we cannot do of ourselves Our calling is not based on what our wife is like. That calling comes from God as that which he requires of us as we stand before his face. And we pray for the grace that's necessary to be faithful. Now it's so easy, as we all know, to take our wives for granted. I remember a gentleman who lost his wife some years ago. And with tears in his eyes, he said to me, never take your wife for granted. He said, I did it. And now I look back and I regret that. And now she isn't here anymore. It's so easy. It's so easy also to require of our wives more than is justifiable before God. It's easy for us to abuse our role as husbands. As we stand before the word of God in all of its power, there's only one response. And that is humility and repentance and clinging to the cross and knowing that through Jesus Christ there is not only forgiveness, but by the power of His Spirit there is the strength to go forward. We're forced, beloved, to confess there is no other explanation for my marriage than the grace of God. The godly husband is characterized by grace. And that means I know who I am, a sinner saved by grace. And I seek to live in thankfulness to God for that wondrous mercy and grace that he's shown me. And I know that grace has a power to forgive me and to work sanctification in my life. And I seek now to live out of that grace in the relationships in which God puts us. We cannot live and dwell with our wives of ourselves. And God is the one alone able to give our wives the grace to forgive us and to live faithfully with us. God works the ability to know his will and to pursue it. And we're dependent upon that grace to fulfill the calling that he sets before us as his covenant children. That grace, which is, first of all, the grace to forgive, but it's far more than that. It's the grace that teaches us to stop those foolish, hurtful, harmful, sinful things that we do. We don't just keep doing them, keep saying them, and keep saying sorry. We work hard at not doing them, and we pray for the grace to overcome. When from the heart we forgive, we do so not giving ultimatums, not giving threats, Those who are living in love and forgiveness are not going to be stating, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, then I'm out of here. They're not going to be making threats. That's not grace. Forgiving grace must be evident, but also a grace to change, a grace to conform, a grace to be an instrument of change in one another so that we seek God and we seek what's pleasing to him. It's the knowledge of his word and that word living in our hearts and our heartfelt desire as Christ to pursue the will of our Heavenly Father. God sets here in that context a twofold duty for husbands. First of all, dwell with them according to knowledge. And the motive that's used there is as unto the weaker vessel. Dwell exposes the uniqueness of the marriage bond. The only time that this word is used in the New Testament is in the context of housing with. God dwells with his people by sharing his life with them, intimately living by his spirit in their hearts. We live with God in spiritual unity and peace. God walked with Enoch, and Enoch walked with God. And We have illustrations again and again of the saints walking with and dwelling with God. Most practically, dwell means then being at home one with another. As young couples, so easy it is for us to get married but then continue to live our separate lives. We're working our separate jobs. We still have our friends. We rarely see one another through the week except maybe on the weekends. At times, there's some pleasure in that as We don't want our marriage to disturb our personal lives. We want to maintain that life that we had with our friends. And so after we're married, nothing really changes. Except that now we're living in the same house. We're sleeping in the same bed. We continue to live somewhat separate lives. Dwell with your wife is the admonition that we hear from God's word. Live with the one whom you are married with. Talk with them. House with them. Walk together with them. Live together with one another every single day. Yes, you need to work in order to provide for the needs of your family, but you can't put a price tag on dwelling with your wife. And it's better for you to be at home in a small house with a ragged couch with your wife than out trying to amass a fortune. If the husband makes himself so busy that he's rarely at home, He's rarely spending time with his wife. Even may give the impression he doesn't really like to be at home. Then the word of God comes to you sharply. There is something seriously wrong with your marriage. You are the one who is called to dwell with your wife. Proverbs 27, verse 8. As a bird that wandereth from her nest, so is a man that wandereth from his place. Now, in order to dwell with our wives, we need knowledge. That's what the text states. Husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. What is the knowledge that's most important? It's this. Your wife is a precious gift to you from God. You don't learn the knowledge of your wife from the world. Sitting in front of the television night after night is not going to strengthen you in the knowledge that you need with regard to your wife. You're not going to learn what your wife is all about from pornography. Pornography is not going to teach you how to dwell with your wife. If you've learned your knowledge concerning a woman from the world, you're going to be standing before God who will judge you, and your wife will suffer. Your knowledge has to come from God's word. What does God say about your wife? And as we stand before God's word, we hear the word of God that states that our wives are precious possessions from God. They're gifts from God. And they don't belong to us, they belong to God. But God has entrusted them to us for a time. And as a child of God, our wife is redeemed by God. She's been chosen by God. God chose her from eternity. He sent his son to lay down his life for her. And she is one who is a blood-bought child of the king. So precious that God deemed that he would spill the blood of his own son for her. That's who you are privileged to live with. Someone for whom Jesus died. And someone whom God loves with such a great love that he will preserve and he will keep her now and to all eternity. You better think twice before you lift up your hand to strike the object of God's love and God's compassion. Think twice before you open your mouth to say something against this one who is beloved of God. How dare we treat God's precious possession as something plain, something without value, something that we are to demean. If we are going to be Faithful husbands, we need to immerse ourselves with the Word of God. We need the holy passion that Paul speaks of in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. What is Paul speaking of there? He's saying, What's most important to me is to know Christ, to know Christ, to know the power of His resurrection to know the fellowship of his sufferings. More than anything else, I want to know Christ. And beloved, that must be your and my desire as husbands, as men, godly men in the congregation to know Christ, to know Christ in all of his fullness. And as we grow in our knowledge of Christ and what Christ did for us and the love of Christ for his church and the faithfulness of Christ, we stand in awe. And we're humbled again. This is my Lord. This is what he did for me, an undeserving sinner. Now, what are some passages, beloved, that help us with that calling? Some passages, just to toss out a few for us as men especially, to read and to meditate on. Colossians 2. Especially after verse 15, where Christ and the church are beautifully explained. And we read there about the love that Christ has for his church how tenderly he cares for his church and provides for his church. Hebrews 1, where we read that Christ is the express image of God. Proverbs 8, where Christ is spoken of as wisdom personified. We cry out to God in prayer that God will give us to know Christ, to walk with Christ, to obey him, As our Lord, to love him and to love our wife for Christ's sake. As we grow in that knowledge of Christ, we grow in our ability to walk according to that grace that God has called us. And what is the aspect again of that knowledge? To know that she is a precious vessel. Our text calls her that giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. That's not demeaning. All of us are vessels, precious, fragile vessels of God. And the word vessel points to the fact that Jehovah God has created all men and women. He's fitted them, he's fashioned them. And think of Romans 9, the potter with the clay. The potter carefully by his own hand Fashioning every individual vessel for the purpose that he has for that vessel. The point of the Spirit here is that men are also vessels. All of us together are vessels. Men are weak vessels. Women, weaker vessels. Now what does that mean? That's not referring to her mental, spiritual, or any moral weakness. We know that Men and women, spiritually, are the same. They're united. There's no difference. But with regard to her identity as a woman, God made the woman to be under her husband. And she was created then vulnerable. She wants to be loved, and her need for love makes her vulnerable to being abused. Now, unbelieving women want nothing to do with that reference as a weaker vessel. The wicked men, wicked husbands, turn this into tyranny and they prey on their wives and they abuse their wives because of her need for love. And so easy this is for us to do as well as young men. We want their bodies when we're dating them. And so what do we say? We say, I love you, I love you. We don't love her. We're lusting after her. We use that terminology because we know that's what she wants to hear. Just to abuse her in order to satisfy our desires. God will judge such sinfulness. And we cry out in sorrow, repenting. Christian husbands are called to live differently. Live with your wives. Treat your wives as God made her. Not as she even may conceive of herself. Love your wife for Christ's sake. And love her, not to abuse her, not to use her, but to esteem her. And to help her see her value and her worth as a precious, possessed vessel of God. As Christian husbands, cherish, love, care for your wives in the sensitivity of that position that God has given to her. Don't use that love to abuse. Don't give occasion to your wife to doubt your love for her. Don't think that it's a good thing to keep her always wondering where she stands with you in the relationship. Assure her of your love for her. Often, repeatedly. Don't just take the position, I told her I loved her when we got married, therefore it's not necessary for me to do so any longer. Every single day, regularly, We make known that love and that care that we have for her. Heirs together of God's grace. Recipients together of the marvelous wonders of the salvation that God has given. Treat her with respect. Lead, protect, cherish, nurture her for God's sake. And how are you teaching your sons that truth? By your interaction with their mother? How are you treating your daughters? And how are your daughters seeing by your treatment of your wife how they are to be treated by their husband, Lord willing? This is our calling, beloved, before God. And again, we cry out to God for grace and for strength. God requires of me more than I am capable of doing, but he promises that he will grant grace and strength to his children. But secondly, the calling is set forth here, give honor unto your wife. And that also is accompanied with a motive, as being heirs together of the grace of life. You're to give her honor. Honor is something that doesn't come outwardly. Honor is something that comes from the heart. As we read through the epistles of Peter, we find that honor is a very often mentioned word throughout his epistles. And repeatedly we read of honor as applied to God. Honor God. He talks about honoring the king. And the idea is this. Honor is shown toward one who is great, who is glorious, who is worthy of that honor and glory because of the position that that one occupies. Honor is an understanding of the great value of that thing and treating that thing according to the value that it has. Now, as applied then to our wives, we see the great outstanding value that God has given to our wives as his possessions. And we see her as one whom God has redeemed so that she's a joint heir with me of the grace of God. That God has given to my believing wife an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for her. And that Christ is keeping her. And preserving her unto that glorious end. That she's a daughter of the king. That you are married to a woman who exists not for you. She exists for God and for his glory and for his praise. You're married to royalty in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has shed his blood not only for you but for your wife so that she, as his precious possession, will be his bride to all eternity. You as a husband must behave yourself toward her as one who knows that grace of life. And your children must see that treatment that you have toward your wife. People around you must see this is how he treats his wife, reflecting the glory and the grace of God in your life. Honor is recognizing the value of. And again, we ask ourselves, do I recognize who my wife is? God has given to her the honor that she is a joint heir of the grace of life. As Peter's writing this, the pagans had a very low view of women. The pagans did not view women highly. And the apostles emphasizing the importance of it, as did Jesus, in order to set that bar where it ought be with regard to the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is different from the world. God tells you what she is worth. And are you listening to God? Don't look at her weaknesses. Don't try to demean her. Don't try to knock her down because she's not as knowledgeable as you are. Her worth is not found in what she does. Her worth is not found in who she is, what she's able to accomplish, what her looks are like or what she's able to do her value is in who she is before god she is a blood-bought daughter of the king and so god tells you that's not just your wife she's not just a woman she's not just a homemaker you have been given a daughter of the king to dwell with and beloved we pray that god opens our eyes as husbands to see the precious gift that God gives to us and that we cry out to Christ for the mercy faithfully to live with that one for his glory. There's a powerful incentive finally that we look at this evening. God desires that we be a witness in our marriage to those around us concerning the love that we have toward God. That again is an emphasis again and again we read throughout Peter. Peter is saying, honor the king, respect those in authority, walk in this manner in order that others who are mocking you, who are ridiculing, who are persecuting you, might be silenced and put to shame. God desires that we be a witness with regard to our life in our homes. You know how your labors live especially maybe in the summertime when the windows are open, you hear the squabbles that are going on. Maybe you see police cars pull up in order to settle disputes. You hear reports sometimes that so-and-so is cheating on so-and-so. Maybe in the workplace we start hearing the gossip about what's all going on in marriages, and that marriage is on the rocks, that marriage is going through a divorce. What a contrast, beloved, to the godly devotion to one another and obedience to God. Even if you're not talking much with your neighbors, you have an idea of what their relationship is like. And don't think they don't have the same idea regarding yours. The world picks up on your relationship to your wife. The men at work may have never met your wife, but they know her. And they know how you talk about her. And they have an idea of what she's like. Have you complained about your wife? Do you tell them all about her faults? Do you mock her in their presence? I've worked with couples whose marriages were almost destroyed because they were struggling in their marriages, and instead of getting help, they confided in someone at work. And that person was willing to listen to them, willing to grant a listening ear, unlike their wife or unlike their husband. And pretty soon they were on their way to an emotional and intimate relationship with Someone else without realizing how cleverly the devil was drawing them in. Be on guard. Get help. Don't seek out others to speak bad or evil about your spouse. The people with whom you work need to know that you believe that you are living with a daughter of the king, they need to know your commitment to your wife. They need to know that you think the world of your wife because of who she is in God's eyes. That you love your wife, first of all, because of God and for His sake. And what does that mean? While you were single, you walked in love toward God in a different way. But now that you're married, God has commanded you to love your wife. Your obedience to God now is shown by loving your wife, by submitting to your husband in marriage. And your calling is to do that, not for anything you get out of it. It's to do it for God's sake. You love God, and God now has put you in this relationship, and you are called now to show your love to Him by loving one another. And so it doesn't matter what your wife is like. It doesn't matter what your husband's like. Your husband might be an unbeliever. He might be the most rotten, unloving, uncaring individual. What does God say? In chapter 3 here, verses 1 and 2, Dwell with them. Obey them. Honor them. That without the word they may be won by the conversation of the wise. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. We love not for what we can get out of it. We love for God's sake. And because we love God, we live together and we maintain faithfulness to God. For God's sake, I'm not looking at other women. I'm not looking at other men. For God's sake, I give my wife no occasion to doubt or question my love for her. And for God's sake, I give my husband no reason to question or to doubt or be jealous of my love for him. If we take our instruction regarding marriage from the world, we're going to hear the very opposite. The world's going to tell you, only show love if you're getting that love and happiness in return. The world is going to say the value of your wife is based on what she's able to do for you, what she's able to give you. And if you're not happy, ditch her. Go find another woman. The world degrades women into that which is useful merely for sexual attraction. The world and the feminist movement degrade women into being that which is used, that which is not in accordance with. With God's word. God doesn't, and neither may we. God says, My daughters are daughters of the king. They're princesses. And I'm preparing them so that I can take them to my palace. And now I'm getting them ready for my own marriage bed. But I'm entrusting them to you for a time to assist me in that spiritual work. Is that your attitude, beloved, toward your wife? If your wife was asked, would she tell someone? This is the value my husband places upon me. Beloved, this is your calling. This is my calling as a husband. And this is the responsibility that God gives to a young man as he takes a woman in marriage. This is the kind of young man that you young women need to pursue and seek for to marry. Look for a man who's willing, first of all, to submit to God and to his will. One who walks humbly before God and demand of those of that man, those qualities before you give your heart to him. Now, beloved, again, we would despair of ourselves. We look to Christ for his strength. We look to God for his grace. We confess our sins and our weaknesses. I cannot walk in marriage alone. I need God, and I need his help every day. And as husbands, you need to be in the word, developing godly habits with regard to devotions and prayer. You do not have of yourself what you need to be faithful in your marriage. You need to look to God. There's a final incentive here. Pray together. Now there are things that happen that hinder or prevent the ability of God's people sometimes to have communion and fellowship with God in a clear conscience. David experienced that when he was walking in sin, and we experience that in our lives as well. How we live has everything to do with how we're able to walk with God. If we're walking in sin and we're unrepentant in that sin, we come before God with our heads hung in shame. We really don't want to go before God. We don't want to step foot in church. We don't want to hear admonitions. We don't want to listen to our parents. We're going to try to distance ourselves from those who would admonish us and correct us. And most of the time, we're not going to be walking close with God either. We're going to be seeking to walk by our own strength and to pursue our own will. Specifically now here, how you live with your wife has everything to do with how you walk before God. And specifically here, your prayer life is referenced, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. When you're dwelling with your wife sinfully, your prayers are not going to be heard you're going to have no assurance that those prayers are heard. When you're refusing to honor your wife, when you're refusing to submit to your husband, your prayers are not going to be heard. Now, that warning should strike to the heart of every child of God. I love God. I delight in my God, and I want my prayers to be heard. I desire my prayers to come into his presence. Prayer is so precious to the child of God that we ought... Do anything to remove anything that would stand in the way of our prayer life. If something is standing in the way of my prayer life, it must be resolved. And that was Jesus' instruction. Go, make things right, then come into the presence of God. Psalm 66, verse 18 states, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 Your sin have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That cuts us to the heart. And that brings us to our knees in confession. God will hear the broken heart, the contrite heart, no matter what, for God's sake. When we're walking carelessly, we're walking in unrepentant sin. We're not walking with God. We're not loving our wife. We're not loving our husband and we're not able to pray with one another. And again, beloved, be honest and be frank with yourself. When was the last time you prayed alone with your wife? Just the two of you, opening your heart to God. Could you go home this, this evening and sit down with, just, with, just with your wife, hold her hand, and pray together from the heart with her? Express your joy together in the blessing of the salvation that God has given the wonder of the marriage that he's given, and thankfulness to God for each other. Would your prayer be sincere, or would it be the prayer of a hypocrite? If we're abusing our wife, if we're taking our wife for granted, if we're upset with our wife, and we're a child of God, we won't be able to pray. The Spirit testifies to our heart, you can't come into the presence of God in that state. How can you say you love God? whom you can't see when you're not even walking in love toward your spouse, whom you can see. God says, first be reconciled, then come with your gift. There are few things more telling, beloved, than a husband not being able to pray with his wife. May we cry out for mercy, and again, may we know the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And may God give us the humility and the grace by which we look to him and we know his goodness and his mercy. And beloved, this is the wonder of wonders. The holy, righteous God has made his dwelling with you and with me. He will not forsake you. He will not forsake me. He dwells in us by his spirit. He's never moved with anger or wrath toward us because of the power of the cross. And he's working everything together in our lives for good. This is the God whom we serve. Dwell with him and do so in love. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wondrous mercy and grace that thou hast shown us in Jesus Christ. Grant that we might know that grace and the power of it in our lives. Strengthen us as husbands that we might faithfully dwell with our wives, that we might honor our wives, and give unto us the grace as wives to submit to our husbands, to love our husbands for Christ's sake. And strengthen us in our relationships, that in our prayers we might make known our thankfulness to thee, and that thou wilt knit us together in love and grant that we might walk humbly before thy face, giving honor and glory unto thee. And, Lord, preserve and keep us as a witness to our children, our in-laws, our grandchildren, our families, and the world about us, that they might see evidence in us that we walk with thee, and that thou art the one dwelling in our hearts, and that our lives are characterized not by selfishness and lust, but by love. Amen.